Yes, we are approaching 5pm here in Salford in the northwest of the UK, where it is very snowy. We've had a snow day. I'm not too sure about schools. I'm not too sure about schools and businesses and workplaces and offices. But we had plenty of snow today. It's pretty cold. It is Tuesday's Richie Allen Show, the 16th of January, 2024. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. Magnificent, I told you. Magnificent. Lovely. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, Paul Craig Roberts needs very little introduction. Former U.S. Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. He worked in the Reagan administration. He's a prolific author, is Paul Journalist. As these days, he'll join me in the second hour for a conversation about geopolitical matters. We'll focus on the Middle East, of course, the US presidential election, and more with Paul Roberts. Before that, I've invited Kira Connolly on the show. I'm looking forward to chatting with Kira. Kira is an Irish radio presenter and IT specialist. She was heavily involved in setting up what is now Galway Bay FM in Ireland. Uh, she's pretty smart. Uh, I was following Kira on Twitter, or I have been in recent days. She's all over the immigration story in Ireland and had a very interesting conversation with a hotelier who spoke to her about the difficulties of running hotels in Ireland and why some hotel owners might be inclined to take an offer to turn the hotel into, well, a place for asylum seekers to live. Akira will join us live on the programme as this hour in about 25 minutes time. That is Mondays, that's Tuesdays, Jesus. Jesus, Mary and Holy St. Joseph, it's Tuesday, of course it is, and it is approaching two minutes past as the hour of five o'clock. Yes, yes, lovely this morning, a blanket of snow covering the ground, it's lovely. It's lovely for about a half a day, then you get tired of it. It is very cold, big freeze here in the UK, as usual, as the broadcast media and the print media, um, well, they're, they're, they're going very apocalyptic. It's all apocalyptic. Weather warnings. It's the winter, lads. It's midwinter, middle of January. It's not uncommon for it to be very cold and for it to snow. No need for amber weather warnings or incessant, incessant discussion about the weather. People are not stupid. We managed for generations, for decades, for centuries even, we managed to deal with snow on the roads and the footpaths and ice as well. Somehow we managed without being told time and time and time and time again by radio presenters that weather warnings have been issued. We managed. We just got on with it. That's how it used to be. So weather warnings everywhere today. The big freeze here in the UK expected to last until this weekend. How are you in any case? Are you well? Not that I give a shite. No, I do. I do. And if you're not, act accordingly. Loads to tell you, time is short. A tweet from Molly Kingsley, who was on this programme last night. Us for them, Molly Kingsley. A great lady, I thought, I think, and I certainly thought last night, advocate for the rights of children. Tweeted this today. You might know that the MP Andrew Bridgen, formerly of the Conservative Party, but the whip was taken away from him, wasn't it, last year? when all he did was quote an Israeli medic. An Israeli doctor compared vaccine injuries. I think an Israeli medic said, this is as bad, a, this is the worst thing I've seen 
done to humanity since the Holocaust. I think an Israeli medic said that. Whether he's right or not, it makes no difference. Andrew Bridgen, anyway, quoted the guy and he lost the whip. He's been all about vaccine injuries and excess deaths. Now, there was a debate in Westminster this morning. It wasn't in the House of Commons, the main chamber. It was in another room. But um, this is a tweet from Molly Kingsley. Astonishing revelation by Andrew Bridgen in this morning, uh, this morning's Westminster Hall excess death debate. It has been confirmed that the UK Health Security Agency holds data on COVID-19 vaccine dosage dates and deaths. Data which is critical to establishing the absence or otherwise of a causal link between excess deaths and the vaccines. The UK Health Security Agency has apparently released this data to Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca, but it has refused to release the data to the public. So this is the claim by Bridgen. The UK Health Security Agency has data, right, on COVID-19 doses, the dates they were given and subsequent deaths, which it has shared with the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, particularly those who produce a COVID jab, but have not released the data to the public. Bridgen said, they've released our health data to Big Pharma, but they won't release it to us. Is it really too much to ask that the British public be given the same level of access to the relevant data given to Big Pharma companies. It shouldn't be too much to ask. Where's the media? Well, the media is absent. Uh, as of right now, I'm the only one talking about this in the UK right now because they won't be talking about it on the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Sky News, GB News or Talk TV or LBC. They won't be talking about it. Uh, the COVID inquiry should be urgently looking at this issue. Instead, they are wasting taxpayers' money while people are dying. It is as if the inquiry is so desperate uh, not to find fault that they daren't even look. Yes, and of course we talked about this last night with Molly Kingsley. Baroness Hallett, who's heading up the COVID inquiry, announced last week that the, the, the module looking at the rollout of the vaccines will be delayed until sometime in the future. Amazing. 19 MPs showed up, turned up to debate excess debts to learn about it and to learn that the UK Health Security Agency does have data on vaccine dosage and death rates, but hasn't given it to the public, has only given it to Big Pharma. Uh, funnily enough, of the 19 MPs who showed up, one of them, a Labour MP whose name escapes me, but I have seen the clip on Twitter, so you can trust me. But his name escapes me, they're all the same, they're useless anyway. Uh, one of them, a Labour MP, seemed less interested in the bombshell dropped about the UK Health Security Agency. He was more interested in trying to discredit people like the oncologist Angus Dalgleish. Amazing stuff, isn't it? A shameless stuff. Seven minutes past the hour. We'll follow up on it, of course, as best as we can. According to GB News, a national incident has been declared in the UK or in some parts of the UK. No, a national incident has been declared in England. Yeah, England and Wales. I've got to be accurate. I mean, the least you'd expect from me is to be accurate. Yes, a national incident declared 
in parts of England and Wales, as wait for it, measles cases soar. Some kids who have not been vaccinated, wait for it, are being forced to isolate for weeks in the West Midlands. Remember all of that jazz when they were rolling out the COVID shots? Remember how, how many times did we say, you and me, well, if you're vaccinated, how could I represent a threat to you? Don't worry at all. Don't worry your silly little arse about whether I've had the jab or not. If you've had the jabs, you should be happy, you should feel safe, and mind your own business about me. Well, it's kind of come back to that argument, because they're sending children home in the West Midlands to isolate for three weeks if they haven't had a measles jab. Yes. Apparently more than 300 cases have been classed as confirmed or likely in the West Midlands since October. And that follows, or this follows, a drop in uptake of the MMR vaccination against the illness. Kids who had missed both doses of MMR and who live in areas with known cases have been sent home from school in Birmingham. Can you believe it? Of course you can. Many men and women came on this programme over the years and made such predictions. They said, look, we will eventually get there. And they will punish people for not having vaccines. Amazing. Some unvaxxed children have been asked to stay off school and instructions are being given on a case-by-case basis. Birmingham City Council wrote to parents saying the kids could have to isolate for three weeks, which could disrupt their learning if it happens repeatedly, so get them jabbed. And here comes the deliciously dystopian UK Health Security Agency again. Because the UK HSA said... As there have been children who have had to stay off school because of being a contact with a person with measles and being unvaccinated. So what are they saying? That the child who was in contact with a person with measles represents a threat to the vaccinated kids? How is that possible? If your vaccine works, if it is safe and effective. So the UK Health Security Agency says if they have had one dose, they can stay in school. But if they have had neither, they are asked to stay off. And they have rushed jab clinics to certain schools in the West Midlands for parents, for staff and children who have missed the measles jab. Oh my God. Eamon Holmes and Isabel Webster present breakfast for GB News. They spoke with a GP, they always do. Her name is, and I'm rushing to pick up her name, her name, her name, her name, because it's important, is Dr. Sarah Kayat. Dr. Sarah Kayat was on GB News with Eamon Holmes to talk about this. What were they... What were the main talking points? Sarah, you know the main problem now is one of perception. Uh, Vaccine is a bad word to so many people. A lot of people are going to say, what, not another vaccine to worry about. I know know that... Particularly those who've been injured by a vaccine. This has been around a long time, this MMR. Uh, What can you do to allay parents' fears on this one? I think it's so important to remind parents that this is a safe vaccination and um, it's you know something that we have tested again and again and we know it's safe. We also know it's the best protection we have against... Who's we? I mean, she is a lowly GP and I'm not insulting general practitioners or doctors. I'm not taking the piss out of them. But when she says we, 
Was she present during the testing of the MMR jab? Was she involved in the clinical trials? Is she a virologist? Does she know anything about the vaccine? Does she know about the makeup of it? What compounds are in it? What ingredients? Does she have any clue? Always makes me laugh when they say, we know this and we know that. Speak for yourself, love. Something that we have tested again and again, and we know it's safe. We also know it's the best protection we have against measles, mumps and rubella, all of which can cause serious complications in the long term. All of which can. All of which can cause serious complications, she said. Incidentally, incidentally whatever you believe, and I'm open-minded about these things, but whatever you believe, autism was virtually unheard of until the MMR jab came into being and began uh, being stuck in the arms of children all over the world. And that's the truth. I'm not saying autism didn't exist. I am not saying that. I would be a liar and an idiot. Autism did exist, but we never saw anything like it. And, it, the, you know, it does... It does Align the time periods do align with the introduction of MMR. See Andy Wakefield, who's been on this program many times over the years. Love this. Of course, Eamon Holmes doesn't jump in and say, Give us some data, give us some numbers. How many children out of a million or out of a thousand would expect to be injured? Not injured, would expect how many children would we expect to be ill if they got the measles? You know, but he doesn't, does he? So please do take up the MMR vaccine when you are invited. If you're not sure if you've had that vaccination done yet, you can have a look at your childhood red book or you can contact your GP surgery. Yeah, really good advice. Um, I actually Really good advice, says the presenter, who's there to ask questions but decides not to. She covered an outbreak in South Wales, 2012-2013. It was a really big problem in the area. For some reason, uh, uptake of the vaccines there went down and lots of children were taken into hospital. And I suppose what stands out from that, as opposed to COVID, is, of course, this affects children. And it is a stark reminder that, of course, when we see sick children, that's a very alarming thing to see. And there were deaths at that time. Um, if we are to see outbreaks in this country... What's the medical response? Because in Wales, we saw um, vaccines being brought into schools and there was kind of a rush of resources to the area to try and bring up that, that herd immunity level. Um, you know, what sort of thing could we see if we have outbreaks? So we know that outbreaks are more likely to occur in places like nurseries and schools, which is why the first vaccination is usually done at 12 months and the second is done at three years and four months. 12 months. The baby's immune system hasn't even really begun to develop. And they stick a toxic tidal wave of pus into the baby's arm. Um, Holmes. Okay, what I'm going to say to you, I had it when I was young. I can remember, I can remember having it. The measles parties. And a lot of people, I mean, I, I, has it done me any harm, do you think? I mean, I don't know. Would there be any legacy to that? The answer is no. I think you have to remember that for most people, a lot of these infections are going to just result in, you know, maybe a rash, maybe cold-like symptoms, flu-like symptoms, a bit of a fever. You're so why do you want to vaccinate the entire population of children then? If um, it's very, very rare, which it is, that a child who develops measles goes on to be seriously ill. I mean, it's so rare, it's almost ridiculous. So why would you want to inoculate the entire population? It's stupid, isn't it? You're quite right. For many people, it will be fine. But... There are going to be a number of people that suffer the serious consequences. And it's for those people that we really need to try and protect. They speak in generalities and they're never questioned by the presenters. When you say a number, doctor, what exactly do you mean? Well, I can tell you because I looked it up. They would expect less than one in 1,000 children 
to either be gravely ill or to pass away if they contracted measles. So that is a 0.1% chance. If a child gets measles, he or she has a 0.1% chance of either becoming seriously sick or passing away. And that's a, I would suggest that figure itself is dubious. It was dreamt up by the World Health Organization. Hardly trustworthy. But let's take them at their word. Let's just say it is a 0.1% chance. You could further increase those odds and make it even less likely just through a little bit of education. Because I would guess, I would venture a guess, that if a child contracting measles goes on to die, it might be because the parents didn't realise for a day or two or three what was going on and maybe it developed when maybe it could have been nipped in the bud um, a little bit sooner. They never give you that sort of data, do they? So that's uh, the measles. Imagine that they're telling unvaccinated children that in the West Midlands you must stay home for three weeks. Wow. Who could they possibly be a threat to? Well, the answer is nobody. Let's move on and talk about something else. Rwanda is in the news. You might know that MPs in Westminster have been debating a number of amendments to the government's Rwanda bill. So they'll vote on this bill later in the week. Maybe. Maybe Thursday. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. It's not tomorrow, I don't think. They're debating amendments now. So when the government produces a bill, MPs can table amendments to it. Now, the amendments are chosen by the Speaker of the House. He, because it is a he, Lindsay Hoyle is his name, he can say, right, we'll take this amendment and we'll debate it, but that amendment will throw it in the bin. So they're debating a number of amendments. There's about 60 of them, apparently, to this Rwanda bill. It's the most farcical bit of legislation there's ever been. It's an utter nonsense. The government plans to take asylum seekers who land in England and send them off to Rwanda. It's hilarious. Uh, Richard Toyce is the leader of the Reform Party, isn't he? He's also a presenter on... GB News, amazingly. He was on Politics Live on BBC Two today. He was also, sorry, he was on Politics Live. Also on with him was Rachel McLean, who is a Conservative Party minister. Let's have a listen to a bit of this. I think we'll hear Richard Tice now. You've got to do what Australia did. We've got to pick people up safely out of the dinghies, ah. put them into the border force cutters and take them back to France, which we are legally entitled to do under two international treaties. All right, let until me get Rachel's response. Uh, well, let until me get Rachel's response. Until a Prime Minister has the guts to do this, mm. this will not stop and people All will right. keep dying and the blood is on the hands of the politicians who fail to do what needs to be done. All it's right. disgraceful. Well, lots of accusations there. Uh, Rachel, what's wrong with the Australia plan? Yeah, Rachel McLean. I'm afraid that's very emotive language and it doesn't deal with the core issue of the substantive issue, which is we need a deterrent. This is a tough deterrent, which, by the way, is modelled on a lot of the best practice around the world. Of course, we are not going to be breaking vast amounts of international law. Nobody would expect us as a Conservative Party to do that. But nevertheless, this goes much, much further uh, than any previous legislation. We need the deterrent. We know for a fact that the gangs are very worried about this deterrent coming in. So we need to pass it. We need to pass it, she said. So Richard Tice comes back on that finally. We're legally entitled to pick these people up out of the boats and take them back 
to France. Take them back to Dunkirk. I'll take them back, take to, them back to Calais. Yes, that's exactly what I said. We're entitled to do it under the international treaties that I'm absolutely certain Rachel hasn't read. And she talks about emotive. There's nothing more emotive than failing to stop this and people dying on the English Channel, Rachel. Get a grip. Get a grip, the toys. Yes, do you think the next election, I mean, it doesn't matter which party, ultimately holds power in the future. It didn't matter in the last 50 years. It won't matter in the next 50. But do you think they'll set it up to make immigration probably the issue of the election? I mean, the economy's stupid, is what most people say around elections. The economy, I mean, obviously the cost of living... Uh, crisis as they have dubbed it, right, which is the impoverishment of people deliberately using manufactured crises. That's what we would say. The cost of living crisis, that's what we would say. No, 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 no. Manufactured crises to deliberately impoverish people in order to make it much easier for you to get people to, well, to toe the line and to accept the agendas to come. So, yeah, maybe the cost of living, maybe immigration, the major issues in the forthcoming election. Thank you for your messages so far. Uh, I'll be speaking with Paul Craig Roberts later on in the programme. Before that, Kira Connolly will be on. I'm looking forward to chatting with Kira, a radio presenter in Ireland, very much involved in the setting up of what is now Galway Bay FM, presents for planetradio.ie, and um, opines on social media about the immigration issues in Ireland, and had a very interesting conversation with a hotelier who uh, must remain anonymous, uh, the, the gentleman in question, but talking about how the, the, again, I would say, manufactured financial crisis of 2008 was difficult, but hotels survived it. But the lockdown um, really affected hotels in, in Ireland in particular as much as anywhere else, made it very difficult for them, costing them all of these weddings and all these, all, all these other things, these other events that weddings, excuse me, weddings and other events that make up a huge part of the income of hotels. And uh, they, they couldn't do that in, in, uh, in COVID because of the lockdowns. And now some hoteliers are saying, okay, when local authorities say, will you give us your hotel for asylum seekers? We'll talk to Kira about that in a moment. 22 and a half minutes past the hour. It's your Richie Allen show. It is live. It's always live. On richieallen.co.uk, there is an app. Use the app. Um, yeah, listen, when I make a mistake and I say 5pm instead of 4pm, I don't need you to tell me because it doesn't really matter. It matters not a damn. I mean, it might do if somebody is listening and they need to be somewhere. I'll give you that. And, and, and maybe I might be putting them off. But don't, 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 don't joyously tweet me to tell me I got the time wrong. I couldn't give a shit. It doesn't matter. I mean, this will be repeating later on anyway. And people won't know. You grumpy bollocks, Richie. Yes, I am. Uh, Lewis says, I was at school in the 60s. No MMR. We all had measles, mumps, whooping cough. Nobody died, says Lewis. Exactly. We never had any measles jabs when I went to St. Saviour's National School in Ballybegan County, Waterford. And we would know this. We would know. I never heard, ever heard, of a child dying from measles. It was unthinkable. It was unimaginable. Something I never heard about, you know. Uh, Peter says the, the debate chaired by Bridgen in Parliament this morning was interesting. Media won't report on it, of course. Thank you, Peter. We do know that. You're right. He said, another scaremongering propaganda story coming out of them regarding the measles scare. Yes. 
Yeah, I suppose some parents will capitulate. Some will, won't they? If they tell parents your child has not had two measles jabs or even one measles jab. Yes, no, my child hasn't. Well, you must keep your child home then. Now, bear in mind, in most households, mum and dad are working because it's untenable. You know, when I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, again in Ballybeg in Waterford, great place to grow up, Priory Lawn, most mums kept the home. They weren't housewives. They were a million different things. They were accountants. They were um, seamstresses. They, They were everything. They were chefs. They were cooks. They were drivers. They were chauffeurs. Honestly, I'm not trying to curry favour with the women listening. But that's what they were. Um, it could be done back then. Most blokes working in factories, as a, as my father did at the time, um, they could afford to rent a home or to get a small mortgage on a home and for the mum to stay in the house, in the domicile and look after the kids. So these days that's virtually impossible. So you say to somebody, kid's not vaxxed, he's not going to school or she's not going to school, that's going to put a lot of pressure on parents to the point where they might say, you know what, I'll give him the job. Yeah. Graham says, Richie, would you give a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lisa? It's her birthday today. Happy birthday, Lisa. I hope he's looking after you. Ardell says, Richie, the main focus of Davos this year, the World Economic Forum meeting, its annual meeting, uh, seems to be the threat from AI. Ardell says, it seems to me now, in my opinion, AI could be a plant by the elites in another problem reaction solution situation. Interesting that Ardell mentions the WEF because Tony Connolly is a reporter for RTE in Ireland and Connolly, Tony Connolly, is at Davos reporting for RTE. Here's what he told Morning Ireland. What's going on there, Tony? Uh, The big uh, talking point today, uh, well, many talking points. Obviously, Donald Trump's victory in Iowa last night is going to send a shiver through delegates here uh, in Davos, uh, given the prospects that he might make a return uh, as president next year. Um, The uh, president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, is going to be a big talking point today. Now, he got a boost yesterday when Switzerland agreed to host a a peace uh, conference of world leaders uh, on Ukraine uh, sometime in the near future. But overall, Gavin, you know, there is a lot of concern about the impact of the war in Gaza, the war in Ukraine uh, on the global economy. Last year, the big issue was uh, inflation. This year, that, that uh, while inflation has been falling, there's a lot of concern about the overall impact on the global economy of geopolitical conflict. 45% uh, of global CEOs, according to a PwC survey last night, didn't think their business would survive, barring significant changes over the next uh, 10 years. Amazing. That's Price Waterhouse Coopers. 45% of businesses surveyed by Price Waterhouse Coopers said that they expect to be out of business in the next 10 years unless things change. Yeah, again, again, at the risk of sounding repetitive, again, on this show, going back to when I did this type of show in Spain uh, in 2009, uh, originally, 2010, I should say, I've been interviewing men and women from academia, men and women who write, independent writers, who've been saying this is where it is all going. One quick one, um, on 
Ross Cray. Do we have time to do that? No, we don't. I'm going to take a tune. When we come back, uh, Kira Connolly will be on the programme. Later on, Paul Craig Roberts, former Reagan administration official. You don't want to miss Paul at all. Uh, here's music from Seal in the meantime. Do keep those comments coming in. RichieAllen.co.uk comment live or download the app for the programme and send a message to me through the app. It's good to be with you. Music from Seal, that's crazy. It's uh, nearly 29 minutes to the top of the air. Tuesday's programme, Richie Allen broadcasting live from Salford. Uh, thanks for downloading the app for the show. A lot of messages coming in through the app on the subject we're just about to discuss with uh, Kira. Just before I introduce Kira, by the way, let me read you this from rte.ie this afternoon. Uh, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has said he's asking ministers to look at how they can help support the 10 districts in Ireland which have the highest proportion of Ukrainian refugees and international protection applicants. Speaking this morning, Varadkar said, we've done that already to a certain extent with the Community Recognition Fund, but I think we need to do more. He went on to say that he understands that hundreds of people, he understands why hundreds of people have been accommodated. No, no, let me say that again. He said, I understand that hundreds of people have been accommodated in Ross Cray in the last couple of years, both from Ukraine and people seeking international protection. And that has put the town under pressure. So he said he understands that Ross Gray has borne the brunt of this in recent years. He went on to say that he understands the frustrations that everyday people feel and some of the public reps feel there as well. Now my guest at this hour, I'm looking forward to chatting with her, is um, a radio presenter who is uh, hugely instrumental in setting up what is now Galway Bay FM when she was only 17 years old. Uh, she is a radio presenter, a very good one with planetradio.ie and runs her own IT business as well. She's been tweeting on this and had a very interesting conversation with a hotelier, which we'll get into in a moment. Kira, you're very welcome. How are you? Richie, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. That's great to have you on. Thanks for taking the time out because I know you're beavering away in studio yourself today. Hey, listen, for you, you being back home, be, people outside of Ireland who check in with the Irish Times, as a lot of people do, a lot of expats, or who check in online, with um, RTE Radio, they could be forgiven for thinking, Kira, that Ireland has suddenly become, um, from, from what was once a very tolerant, uh, very welcoming country, and people could be forgiven if they didn't know any better, looking in from abroad, that Ireland has become some haven for far-right thugs, um, xenophobes and racists. Now, I don't believe that for a minute, but again, that's the impression you're getting if you're looking in from the outside. What do you think of that? Well, it's an interesting situation here in Ireland at the moment because um, down through the years, um, there was very little racism in Ireland. In, in in fairness, you know, if you saw someone from a different country, particularly a, a coloured person, you'd say, oh, OK, that a little bit different. Um, but over time, over the last 15 or 20 years, um, more people have come to Ireland and that's been pretty much accepted. I think what has happened predominantly in the last two years, um, maybe three, there's been a huge influx of people from um, from countries uh, outside of Europe, not predominantly up to now. A lot of people through the EU were allowed to enter Ireland based on their um, 
passports and the the uh, common uh, travel policy. Um, but what we have now in Ireland is we have a situation where in the last couple of years, 70% of the people that came through Dublin airport um, lost their documents while they were on the plane and were admitted as refugees. Now, as anyone knows, and particularly me, because, um, uh, and thank you for the the, the go away, the Radio S days. Yeah, they were a long time back, but I've traveled extensively all over the world. Um, I've worked in many continents and in many countries, and I remember being in New York the day the Twin Towers came down. And it was horrific because two days previous to that, I was actually up in Windows of the World. After that, everything changed. Before that, I could quite happily travel with my toolkit anywhere in the world. Solding iron, screwdrivers, knives didn't matter. They didn't care. And um, what's the purpose of that? I'm a, an engineer. Um, but after that, um, we suddenly had to take off our shoes and our our belts and um, shore bags and everything else. And suddenly overnight, we have a country, small country called Ireland, where anyone arriving up to our borders without their papers, despite requiring papers to get on an airplane in another country, are admitted and they're given documentation and a bank account within 10 days uh, with whatever name they said they are. And when you when you have a situation like that, it's kind of crazy. Now, I know it's slightly off the topic that we're talking about the hotel and we'll get to that, but um, I reported last April on a guy called Peter Dubé. I don't know whether you saw that post on my timeline. No, I'm, I'm intrigued though. Go ahead. Yeah, I was sitting in my studio and um, one of my one of my ticker tapes on one of the screens flashed up that there was a, a, an alleged multiple murderer who was wanted by the authorities in um, Zimbabwe was said to be staying in Dublin. Okay, so I went, oh, what's that all about? Um, so I looked it up here. Um, I it was late at night. It was I was doing my ten o'clock slot, and I contacted the news agency in Harare. They came back to me the following day, told me the story. I said I'm media here in Ireland. Um, maybe if I find out something, I'll tell you. So they said fine. So o- over the next couple of days, no newspapers, no media reported whatsoever anything about it. So much so I kept poking. And I'd go on to the RTE and I'd go on to different newspaper sites and say, hey, guys, there's a big story here. Peter Dubé, he's wanted uh, for allegedly murdering three people and attempt to murder two other people. He's on an Interpol red notice list. And um, are you not going reporting on it? So there was nothing happening. And did anybody um, say, I, sorry, did anybody say, no, we're not reporting on it and here's why? Were you given any indication as to why they wouldn't oh, no, be no, interested? They ignored it completely, sometimes hid the comment. Um, so with that, I was more intrigued and Harari came back to me in the meantime and they said that they had found this gentleman through his social media posts and he was alleged to be staying in the Red Cow Hotel with his first wife. He murdered his second or he allegedly murdered his second wife and with his two first kids. So I made some inquiries and I got some people to to go on the ground on that end. I then contacted, which I have the emails for, uh, because a lot of people, the one thing I'm finding about social media at the moment is that when you make an actual statement and any statements that I would put up on social media um, or, or anything that I'd make would, would typically be well uh, researched and I can back back them up and substantiate them. Which if all these people come up, oh, Kiri, you're a liar in this and that and the other, because there's this whole raft of people that I think that just want to undermine and possibly uh, rubbish any comments that are made like this. So I got onto the Department of Justice, the DOJ in Ireland, 
And I always remember I sent the email at around 11.20 on a Wednesday morning. I said, hey, guys, I'm doing a story for PR. Um, I'm just asking about this gentleman, boom, boom, boom. And I set out uh, the, the, the facts. Um, I had verified with Interpol at that time that the gentleman in question was wanted um, and for extradition to Zimbabwe and put it all together. So the email was read at 20 to 12. And subsequently, I think it was about 20 something odd people that read it because I had delivery receipt on it um, from that time until I got a response that night at 27 minutes past eight at night saying we don't comment on individual cases. You're kidding me. Yeah, so it gone through. I'll, I'll bang it on to you. Uh, I don't doubt uh, you. I mean, listen, I'm ashamed. Yeah. I'm ashamed because I, I obviously keep up to date with what's going on back home. But I'm going to be totally honest because you should be when you're on the radio, as you well know, Kira. This is the first yeah. I've ever heard of Peter Doobie. Well, it gets worse. Go on. It gets absolutely worse. So um contacted the Department of the Taoiseach. No response. Rang them. Uh, pretty much I, I the, the next email I sent it was blocked. Um my server said it's blocked, you know, it's rejected. So um, I was put on a block list, which is fine. Um, one wouldn't assume that that would happen with uh, with the state authority. But in Ireland, we all are all our elected officials when they come under any scrutiny whatsoever. They block your email, they block your number, they block you on social media. That's modus operandi now with all our elected representatives. Um, which is basically, you know, they're elected, and once they're elected, they feel they can do what they yeah. want. Yeah, and can I, can but, I, can I, I, can I just get this out of the way, Kira? Would, would, yeah. would Peter Dubé have had diplomatic immunity? Would, would he have worked for uh, the government in well, Zimbabwe? I, I doubt it. I doubt it. He was a car dealer in Zimbabwe. He was a car and, dealer. Uh, Jesus. Yeah, and he decided that um, his wife was having an affair with um, with, or allegedly having another affair, uh, because he hasn't been convicted yet, but. Um, and uh, allegedly shot three people and shot a young lad of set five years age, five years of age, and another person. But anyway, th- th- this story rolls on. So I'm, I'm poking. So finally, the, the, Daily Mirror of Michael O'Toole publishes a part about Peter Dubé. This was the first part because I contacted everybody, and said that the Gardaí had no reason to believe that Peter Dubé was in the country. Now he was in the country for two years at that stage. Wow. Okay. Wow. And these these are all there. They're they're on a timeline. Um, I'll send it to you if you want to share. Yeah, it I don't I don't doubt it. I will, and we'll we'll retweet it. Yeah. Of course, yeah. What yeah. a story but, this um, is! You said it gets worse. So this guy is yeah. is Galavante. I shouldn't say Galavante. That's that's um, a bit sensational. But he's living his life in Ireland, and he's wanted for at least for questioning. He's suspected to be involved in murders and very serious murders back in in, in Zimbabwe. You, and um, with your radio background, with your journalism hat on, you you're saying, folks, um, hello, uh, this guy might be very dangerous. Somebody might need to keep tabs on him, and they block you and they ignore you. It's, it's amazing. It's Correct. amazing. So, uh, so basically, this went on. Peter Tool said he wasn't in Ireland. The guards had no. Um, the guards had no uh, view that he ever entered Ireland. Yada yada yada, and all the rest of the stuff. So, um, I sent a subsequent email. Said, look, we have all the information. Um, we managed to um, find out where his wife was. Um, we passed that on to the Zimbabwe um, media. They contacted her, and she said her husband wasn't in Ireland. And he didn't travel with her. And this is a matter of public record, so that's what I'm saying it. Um, we knew he was, and he was living in the Red Cow Hotel. And um, The famous Red Cow, of course. The very famous. The famous Red Cow. Yeah. So, so suffice to say, 
we said, look, you either you either deal with it or um, we'll deal with it. So, um, what did you mean by that? Now, as a matter as a matter of interest, we've only met we, we, today. We 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 publish everything. But fair play, fair play, yeah, 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 everything. Um, so at that stage, then um, I think we gave a de- deadline of when, um, Thursday, twelve noon on the following Thursday. On the Wednesday, he was picked up. He was brought to a district court. Okay, um, he was charged with some other offence. Um, he was. He well, he not Peter Dubé, but this individual was found brought to district court all of a sudden, and he was deported that afternoon to Mozambique. Now, bear in mind, there was an international Interpol red notice on him with the with the Mozambique looking for extradition. They had the guy, but because he had different paperwork, they deported him to Mozambique, not Zimbabwe. Not Zimbabwe, so where, then, he was, where, he, where he was wanted for Where he was wanted. That's just... And, and where, where the Zimbabweans had applied to the Irish justice system for an extradition. So now, they, lifted him, they lifted him in the morning and he was on a plane that evening or in and around that time, time scale. Now bear in mind, in Ireland at this moment in time, we have a guy called Musa Dugan. He is wanted in Turkey for terrorism offences, for bombings and various other things. He was sentenced to death in Turkey. He he got ill. He was put to he was sent to hospital, um, and he escaped from hospital. Um, he came to Sweden. Okay, he was granted asylum and refugee status in Sweden. Uh, Turkey were put in Sweden under pressure to send him to them. Then there was all the aggravation about the um, the entrance to the EU and all the rest of stuff. So he came to Ireland. Okay. So we've Musa Dugan in Ireland, who's a wanted terrorist in Turkey, who has been granted asylum in Sweden, and he was swinging a long stick at people at a protest, trying to trying to stop. That's him. the guy, is it? Now you will probably disagree with me here, and there's no harm in this if you do. I wouldn't send him back to Turkey because I am. One to my bone marrow, I'm opposed to capital punishment. Even if he oh, did, yeah. even if he did do what he did do, I'd say, well, lock him up for the rest of his life by all means. But I wouldn't send him back there. But but but, Kira, why is this happening? I mean, I I'm inclined. I mean, I've got it. Look, could 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 we make an argument, or could we make a case for Zagarda being incompetent? Just in your own case, I mean, you giving them all they need to know about this man, this Peter Dubé. And they're not doing anything. Look, I'm not stupid, and I know you're not stupid, but I've got to ask, is it incompetence, is it just stupidity, or is there something more sinister going on in terms of why they didn't deal with it when you told them about it? Well, you see, the, the thing is that I, I don't believe that, that members of Ergardi are incompetent because they can track down the Kenans in Dubai and all over the world. Yeah. They can go into Spain and arrest people and everything else. Um maybe it's they just didn't want an international incident maybe someone in the state or the the department of state or whatever we have as the department of state in ireland um just said get rid of him uh, don't extradite him because bear in mind that um zimbabwe do practice the death penalty but haven't done it for 17 years so maybe they didn't want that aggro um it, it just it's just astounding you know we we we, we have a, a murder in sligo um of two gay men um, which was, which was, 
I won't say it was big news at the time because it was suppressed greatly. And you had the LGDP, LGDP community coming in behind it and saying, oh, well, this is a once-off incident. We support the Muslims of Sligo and whatever else. But that was a particularly interesting case because this guy at six years of age entered Ireland with his parents uh, who were given asylum from Iraq. Um, and basically what happened was that when he murdered these two men, and I must say grotesquely because... It was horrendous. He had, it was horrendous, he had yeah. them, but he disavowed them. Horrendous, yeah. Um, but he was found with 375000 in cash in his apartment. Um, and it was also alleged, and it's common knowledge in Sligo on the areas, that he had returned to the place that his parents had sought asylum from. Um, and allegedly, his dad wasn't happy that he had a boyfriend. He murdered the two individuals in the in the tenth and eleventh day of Ramadan, which are very significant in relation to what he had done or what it was perceived that he had done to to against the teachings of the Quran. And basically, it was touch and go whether he was going to go down for it or not, because there was a deal done in the end where he didn't go to trial. Because I think that had he gone to trial, the information that would have come out with that would have shown severe incompetence on behalf of the border controls. And the and, and it's just one story after another. Yeah, and the Irish press, and I know this myself personally, um, kind of goes out of its way to not really put everything on the table, uh, all the facts, and debate them openly as an open society, as that's a dirty word for some of our listeners now, an open society, George Soros, some of our listeners don't like that talk. But, um, but yeah, but in a democratic society, that you'd put it all out there and you'd have a look at this man and how he ended up coming to the country when he was six and what sort of education did he have here or, or, or in Ireland and how, how did this happen? But they suppress it. And I'm thinking, uh, Kira, of the murder of Ashling Murphy and the admission by the Irish Times only last weekend, uh, Kitty, uh, Kitty Holland, I think, who admitted that they kept out of the papers an honest and a heartfelt comment by Ashling Murphy's partner when he asked how could it be that this guy came, this guy Pushka, came to Ireland, did nothing, you know, didn't contribute to the state basically, lived off the state, didn't really contribute in any way and he could run up to my uh, partner and stab her so viciously. That's fair comment by Ashling Murphy's boyfriend. And the press admitted, didn't they? Kitty Holland admitted that they kept this out of the reporting, lest it inflame uh, tensions in the country. That's shocking, that, really. And there's echoes well, of that in, in your own story, trying to get this guy looked at, this guy from Zimbabwe, you know? Well, the, the interesting thing about it is that, um, um, well, it, first of all, Kitty Holland made, uh, made um, a claim um, which was proven after the fact to be clay, uh, fake, where she said she witnessed an attack by men armed with baseball bat sticks on dangerous dogs um, in a park. And that was rubbished after the fact. But anyway, um, going back to going back to uh, Ashley Murphy, you know, the uh, the press said that she was strangled. In actual fact, I believe she was stabbed 32 times. Did they say by... strangled originally, did they? To, uh, yeah, they, they right. strangled, yeah. And, um, you know, you also have the situation where his family are now up on trial for um, subvert, or subverting the course of justice because they they hid the fact where he was and whatever else. Now, this guy came to Ireland. He never worked a day in his life. He said he was hand, uh, disabled. In actual fact, he was cycling a bike around the place and and tormenting people. Um, and, and, you know, you just don't have to look at that case. If you look at the case that happened in Dublin, uh, where three kids were stabbed and their two carers were stabbed as well, 
that guy hadn't worked in 20 years. In actual fact, he's in Ireland for 20 years and he needed a court interpreter. So, you know, the, you, you have, you have the far left saying diversity is good. We need the employees. We need laborers. We need this. We need that. We need the other, but in actual fact, on the other side, people that are here for 20 years have never actually worked in the country. And what's even more interesting about it is that that particular individual in Dublin, he, he was done for knife crime uh, weeks before that. Now, the interesting thing about this, um, Richie, is that the EU and the United Nations have given a guideline to the press and media that migrants and refugees must not be in any way treated in a bad light. And the National Union of Journalists, which is in the UK and Ireland, and I believe they have chapters all over the world, have agreed to that. So basically what you have is, it's, it's, just, it's just crazy. In Ireland at the moment, if anyone other than an Irish person commits a crime, first of all, they say, well, it's a Dublin man. But in actual fact, he had moved from um, wherever it was, um, Mozambique, three weeks previous that, but now he's a Dublin man. And that's the way they set it. They put no names. Like we have a situation in Dublin airport where a person who was in the country a number of years, there was some problem with his house. Um, he was being thrown out of his house in Limerick and he went to Dublin and he stabbed a German tourist 12 times. And the defense in court by an NGO um, legal team was that it was a cry for help. Jesus, a cry for help. Kira, I'm, I'm, look, I'm looking at the time, right? We've got about seven, eight minutes left. Kira sure. Connolly is our guest. This is fascinating stuff. You'll find Kira at planetradio.ie. Uh, she's a radio presenter, an IT specialist. Um, I invited Kira on because I've been following um, her Twitter account, particularly um, a tweet that I find fascinating because I'm going to be talking about this on the programme tomorrow, which I mentioned to you off air, and that is you spoke to a hotelier because we haven't really gotten into that or we haven't gotten into this on um, on my programme yet, and that is what are the inducements for hotel owners to say, okay, we can requisition or you can requisition my hotel and put asylum seekers in there. And you had a fascinating conversation, which you tweeted about very well, uh, with a, a gentleman who talked about how the crash of 2008 was difficult for businesses, but he was able to negotiate that and keep his business alive. But COVID and the lockdowns, the lockdowns were devastating for the business. And that led up to, you know, asylum seekers. Tell us about that conversation you had, because I'm guessing it might be a similar story around the country where hotels have been handed over in return for financial, you, you, you know, for a payment. It, it might be that, that hoteliers tell the same story. What did the guy tell you running his hotel, how he came to be thinking about giving it over for the provision of asylum seekers? Well, I, I think that story really starts back in 2005, 2006, in around that time. As we all know, 2008, 2009, there was a financial crash. Uh, singer Kipper Freelander in the in the UK, which was an Icelandic bank, crashed, and uh, that that set the scale in motion. Um, what happened back in those days was the hotels. Um, there was long-established hotels. They were maybe slightly old-fashioned, but they 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 did their job. And suddenly, the hotel boom happened in Ireland. And every second day, there was a hotel going up somewhere, um, funded by banks, Irish banks, funded by. Um, Banks like the Ulster Bank, who got badly caught in that sector, 
Um, so th back then I was doing a lot of work in hotels. I was very good with Opera Fidelio, which would be the in-house uh, reservation systems. So I would have had a, quite a number of hotels under my belt. Uh, back then what happened was there was a crash, everything died. Um, suddenly there was receivers appointed to hotels all over the country. And um, some of them worked through their process. Some of them didn't and lost them. Uh, hotels being sold that cost 30 million to build for 900 grand um, back in the day in 2010. Um, so anyone that survived through that basically worked hard to get out of that situation. Um, there was possibly no reinvestment in the hotel over the last 10 years because things were tight. Um, but people got on with it and tried their best. Then COVID came along and where you had hotels that were doing pretty well and maybe doing 100 weddings a year, uh, which filled their bedrooms because um, there weren't particularly depending on tourism, they suddenly found there was no bedroom fill. There was no events. Ten people in a function room didn't really cut it for the number of staff you needed to put on the day. So COVID was huge um, in, in a lot of cases. It was huge in hotel base. It was huge in the fact that a lot of people, I heard you uh, on the lead up to my intro, speaking about vaccines people certain people just didn't take them including myself i said like whoa hang on here yeah aids is there for 38 years um how can you suddenly produce a vaccine for a new uh, strain of a novel virus um in six weeks you know Good and, you. And, test it yeah. and and do all the other stuff but that aside the the ireland has changed because of COVID. people had their home pubs they got out of the habit of going to a pub. They got out of the habit of going to a restaurant. Um, they felt bad because they were precluded because they didn't have a piece of paper saying they were clean. Um, so the hotel industry suffered. Hotels suffered because of that. And then we have the Ukraine war where energy prices went from nine cents commercial unit to 42 cents, in some cases to 56 cents a unit, depending on what their buy-in options were. Um, you have um, insurance gone through the roof. Um, you have uh, food prices then increase of 40%. So I was talking to my man, he rang me and he said, listen, he said, I, legally, he said, I have to keep um, a record of all my transactions in the next seven years. Uh, but if I shut down my servers, will they power up or what do I do? Do I leave them running? Do I need to keep you on board to keep them running? What? And I said, well, you need to do a backup. But why are you closing the hotel or what? I'm not closing it, he said. I'm actually... Um, given it to a management company who are going to put refugees in it. Jeez. I said, you're not going, you're not going to go down well in your community. He said, he said, it's either that he said, or go bankrupt. I said, what do you mean? I said, I thought you're doing well. He said the last three years, he said the government had given us stuff, but you know, we warehoused a lot of, um, we warehoused a lot of uh, tax debt over the last number of years, which is coming due, falling due for payment in April and May this year. Um, he said, energy prices just through the roof. He said, I have a couple of thousand people using our leisure center. He said, it actually costs me to open it. So he says, the renewals are coming up in April. I'll keep it going to that. And then I'm just going to tell everyone, sorry, it's just not feasible. So he reckoned that his only way out and his only way out was to hand it all over. Um, his energy costs are gone straight away. He's gone given the staff, or so he tells me, very good redundancy packages over and above what they're entitled to because they've been with them a long time. Um, and he, he won't need to have 76 or so staff. He won't need to run a function room. He won't need to run a restaurant. He won't, won't need to run uh, uh, even a kitchen because he said the meals are set. So whoever goes in there might have two or three 
chefs, they produce a batch meal, that's it, end of story, and people clean up after themselves. And he said that his belief and talking to other people in the industry, which is echoed across the industry, because you have Adrian from the uh, hospitality crowd who was pro-vaccine, pro-everything else, now crying about how restaurants are closing left, right and centre, because first of all, people aren't supporting them. Second of all, 40% of food, food prices and also energy prices and the warehousing deal coming down the road. So he said, if we don't have restaurants in the community or if we don't have stuff that people are going to go to, our tourist trade has diminished. The word on the street is that Ireland has turned into a third world country. Yeah. People are getting raped and stabbed and killed and murdered and everything else. He said most of his industry peers that have hotels that would be dependent on bus tours, which would be a big part of their thing. You have to understand that hotels make their money either out of banqueting for weddings or they do bus tours where they're block booked for uh, six months or five months, or whatever it is of the year. And then their September, October, November is quiet. Then back into December, they do their Christmas parties. January is really bad. February is really bad. Things start picking up around Easter. So they rely on the busy times of the year to shore them up for the quieter times of the year. But he said that isn't going to be in it. That wasn't in it last year. Like I was looking at figures from Vulture Ireland. The last figures they produced were in 2018. They've, they've shied away from them for the last three years. But they were saying that the tourist industry in Ireland was worth 9.6 billion. That was the tourist industry. Now, some people will say, oh, well, a factory in Intel or somewhere is worth that kind of money. But they're not looking at the trickle down. They're not looking at the restaurants around that, the tour operators, the people that um, provide flowers, entertainment, all yeah, the rest of stuff. The satellite you industries, know, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the trickle down. And, you, you know, you have event people now going out of business. You have, you know, bands saying we have six weddings this year where normally their calendar would have been 50, 60, 70, 80 weddings for 2024. We had a, I had a girl working with us in something else I'm involved in. And she was a dinger. She was going to University College in Galway. Her boyfriend was going there. He was doing medicine uh, or well, some form of medicine. I don't think it was GP medicine. I think it was more um, uh, scientific medicine. But they made the decision to move to Australia when they had finished their degrees. And the decision was based solely on that they could not see any way, shape or form of them being able to afford a house and raise a family in Ireland like their parents did. They couldn't see the viability of staying here. They couldn't guarantee the security and safety if they have kids. And she said what particularly bothered them was they went to a hotel. They were talking about getting married. I said, geez, you're very young to be getting married. No, no, I love him and he loves me and he proposed to me and everything else. But we'll get married in Australia. She said, we went to three hotels and none of the hotels could guarantee us that the, if they booked the hotel, the meal for this time next year, she said, that they could guarantee that the prices would still be the same that they could guarantee that the guests would have be able to get rooms and that they could guarantee that they'd have the hotel to themselves. Yeah, or even that the hotel would still be taking, would be honouring these bookings, that, that in the Correct. meantime, the hotel. Oh, yeah. Kira, we're, we're, we're nearly up on time. And that is a brilliant window, what you've told us there, into understanding how it's happening, how so many of these buildings are being um, basically decommissioned as hotels as we would understand them. 
and being given over to management companies to put asylum seekers in them. The damage that does locally because people don't have places to go, they don't have places to have their celebrations, their weddings, their 25th wedding anniversaries, their 21st birthday parties, all of this. People in these areas are quite rightly asking questions. I said last night and I meant it, you know, people might say, well, you would say it, Richie, because you're Irish. But there's never been a more generous race of people on planet Earth or a more welcome or a more concerned race uh, than the Irish. We've always been great um, donors to causes around the world over the years, whether it be in third world countries. Uh, our heart has always been in the right place. It's nothing to do with racism. This is down to logistics and to the problems of areas where public services are being cut to pieces and then you introduce more people into an area. That's what it's coming down to. There's no racism in Ireland. Brilliant window into it, Kier. We're, we're just about up on time. Um, stay in touch with us, will you? I'm glad we connected. You can be found on planetradio.ie. Yeah, you've been listening to Kira Connolly. Kira is a radio presenter and uh, is an IT specialist, has run IT business, her own IT business for many years. I'll give you a quick final word, uh, 30 seconds if you want, uh, Kira. Sobering picture that. Thanks for sharing your time with us today. Yeah. Thank you, Richie, for having me. I think the one word that I'm going to say is that the incentives are great for anyone that that wants to get into this market because if you have a hotel that's somewhat run down, uh, you can sign your five-year contract and the hotel will be put back to better than new condition after your contract. That's yeah. if you, you give up your contract. And that's what's happening all over the place. Um, and I think that, you know, notwithstanding hotels, our health services is gone to absolute ruin. And, you know, it, just if you look at the prison numbers, it's just crazy the amount of non-nationals that are put to prison for serious crime. That could be a conversation for another day if you're up for it. Uh, no doubt I will be up for it. Uh, thanks again, Kira, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And we will talk again. Thanks, Mind yourself. Uh, bye you for too. now. Uh, Kira Connolly, as I mentioned, live on the line, planetradio.ie. Fascinating insight into how hotels are being taken and put in, uh, you know, t basically taken out of use, as we would understand, as we would expect hotels to be used in leisure centres in those buildings and given over to management companies to basically house asylum seekers there and the problems then in communities. And that story earlier on, I mean, it's, it's all it's all true. Uh, Kira talking to us about the amazing case of Peter Dubay, the Zimbabwe gentleman in Ireland, hiding in Ireland effectively, wanted for questioning for serious murders in his own country of Zimbabwe. And Kira doing everything that you could possibly do to raise the alarm about this and being met with um, indifference in some cases, but in most cases being completely ignored um, um, on that. Amazing stuff. Uh, it is exactly four and a half minutes past the hour of five o'clock. That's right. I'll, I'll get it right. I'll get it right now. This is your Richie Allen Show. I'll be talk. I'll be reading your comments in a moment when I come back after I take a tune. And then Paul Craig Roberts will be live on the program. Um, I think he's in Virginia today. Paul might very well be in Virginia. Yes. Good to be with you as always. Here's Annie Lennox. This is Walking on Broken Glass. Yeah, music from Annie Lennox, Walking on Broken Glass, The Richie Allen Show, 8, just over 8 minutes it is now past the hour. Tuesday's programme, 16th of January, and it is icy, it is an icy day here in the UK. Nobody came on to tell me whether their kiddies were kept home from school today. I can remember my primary school days as if they were yesterday. That's a funny thing, really, because I struggle. Sometimes I, I find myself becoming forgetful. You know when you're approaching 50 
And I know 50 or approaching 50 isn't really old. Of course it isn't. 75 isn't old anymore. It isn't really. We know that. But um, I do find myself having to stretch the old memory a bit more than I ever did previously. So I do struggle with recall. But here's the thing. It's recent-ish. This is why I'm worried, right? I might have myself scanned. It's um, it's recent memories. But I, I've great memories, of really vivid memories of my primary school. And we did have at least two or three times during my days in primary school, we did wake up to snow. Probably three times where we woke up and the place, the the estate, the housing estate Ballybeg where I lived, where I had a great time growing up, was um, blanketed in snow. And we had that thing where you turned on the local radio, which would have been WLRFM, and you're waiting for the announcement. This was greatly parodied in the Simpsons cartoon, wasn't it? In one of the very early episodes of the Simpsons, it was brilliant. They got up to snow, they sat by the radio, Homer... <laughs> and Marge and the kids and Homer was just as excited as the kids because he was waiting for news that the nuclear power plant was closing too. But we had that. And I thought of it today when I got up because there was a fair covering of snow. I wondered, was it uh, the case that some of the local schools schools closed even? But I don't know if they did or didn't. We are waiting on the great Paul Craig Roberts, who's due uh, to be chatting with me and you in a couple of minutes' time. He isn't online as of yet. That's okay. We can talk amongst ourselves. Uh, Good evening to Angela Lambert. Thank you, Angela. She found uh, the conversation with Kira very interesting. And it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. I don't know how scary it is for people. You know a lot of these Irish people who who are, you know, raising their hands and asking questions. Now, I talked about this last night, so I'm not going to get into it again. I don't want to repeat myself. But you know these people, many of the people asking questions, they're not aware of the agendas, like you and I are aware of the agendas. Now, that might sound pompous, that might sound arrogant, but it isn't at all, because I remember not too long ago when I wasn't aware of any agendas. You know, we're only talking 20 years ago when I hadn't a clue, really, what was going on and why it was going on. But it must be scary for those people who see what's happening in their community or communities and they ask questions. And these are decent people, right? They go about their business. Uh, To be called a racist or a Nazi, that must be terrifying for people. I mean, maybe we don't think about that enough. It must be genuinely scary for them. What? Uh, Jesus, I'm I'm not. I, I just want to know what's going on. I mean, so uh, it must be, yeah, yeah. It is tragic, yeah. And I know, because I've mentioned on the other programme, the music programme, I used to spend a lot of time in my early teens going to pubs and hotels in rural Munster with my uncle, who was a musician, was a singer. He was an act. He had an act. He sang music from the 60s and 70s. He could sing. He had a decent enough voice. And he had a brass neck, so he did that. So I remember going to these areas. I know just how important hotels are in rural communities. Obviously, for a number of reasons. Um, For the economy. People coming and spending money in the hotels, but also spending money in the shops and in the businesses in the area, as Kira mentioned earlier on. Hugely important. So you decommission the hotel, and you give it over to a company that's going to manage it, and bring in catering and all of that for asylum seekers. Again, I mentioned on the programme last night, God love them, ain't their fault. Not their fault, they're there. But um, it's, ter- it's, ho- it's horrible for people. 
you ask a question, you are denounced. A denuncia is levelled at you, is, is cast upon you. Well, you're a racist. That is scary for people. Listen, I'll be honest. When, when I first, was it, when, when, at the very first time, I was accused of anti-Semitism in a national newspaper in the UK. And that was about seven or so years ago. Um, for about ten minutes it bothered me. Like, it did bother me. Because I don't have an anti-Semitic bone in my body. You know, I don't. I mean, provably, demonstrably, of course I don't. Um, I might have a big problem with Israel, and I have had for most of my adult life, and I speak about it. But, you know, I've interviewed many Jewish people. I've interviewed Zionists who would disagree with me, and we would have conversations. But um, for about five, ten minutes it bothered me. You know, and then I got over it. And I, I, I think I got over it because of my background in radio. I was used to being criticised and critiqued and um, people disagreeing with me and, you know, people saying things that I didn't like. But I had that experience. I got over it in a few minutes. But, you know, some, some chap who maybe he has a little bit of a farm, maybe, maybe. You know, some woman who's got a little bit of a farm, maybe. To be in a position where you're being accused of racism. It's not nice. Ray is in Edinburgh. Ray says we had the same challenge with asylum seekers. However, they are now not renewing contracts. This will lead to some serious issues. But we have a remedy, he says, at our end. That's Ray. Thank you, Ray, uh, for that. And did I mention Gaz? Gaz is living in Peterborough, the asylum capital of the UK. I live and work with them every day, but I sometimes think, why are these people fleeing? Are they victims or are they the perpetrators? Are they actually on the run? Who knows, says Gaz. Well, again, you're, you're supposed to trust your local authorities. You're supposed to be able to trust the police in your uh, area. You're supposed to be able to trust the politicians. You're supposed to be able to believe what you're told. But as we know, in too many cases, or most cases, you can't trust them. So people don't know. And of course there will be people going into hotels in Ireland who are genuinely on the run from tyranny. No doubt about it. Again, we got into it last night in great detail. I don't want to get into it in too much detail right now. Don says, Richie, the main subject being discussed at Davos is how to rebuild trust. That's right, Don. I did see a clip of Klaus Schwab today saying that very thing. Um, were they ever trusted, the World Economic Forum? It is at 16 minutes past the hour. Was there ever trust uh, for the World Economic Forum? Uh, going to the website, richieallen.co.uk, where you can leave a message for me if you choose. Good evening. Uh, Joe says, no snow yet in Edinburgh. Jesus, Joe, you're much further north of me. No snow, very interesting. Spinners says, the TV doctor appearing on GB News to talk about vaccines is the same doctor, although Spinners refers to her as a charlatan. Apparently she appeared on the box with Schofield and Willoughby on ITV when the clot shot was first released. She was the gormless pharma puppet, says Spinners, who spouted about it being 100% effective against COVID. Yes, I did mention a story in the Papers podcast earlier today, a very interesting story in The Times, which claimed that because people didn't have booster jabs in early 2002, wait for it, it led to 
7,000 COVID hospitalizations and deaths in the summer of 2022. Now that's, as Jeannie Bueller might say, you might dry that one out and fertilize the lawn with it. That smells bullshit, doesn't it? Right, they say that because people didn't come forward for booster jabs in 2022, um, that or late 2021, early 2022, that led to 7,000 hospitalizations and deaths in this country. I dealt with that uh, story in the papers podcast this morning. It's horse manure. Because they started off by saying, take the jabs, 100% safe and effective. It will prevent you from coming down with COVID. They then had to admit that was nonsense and that the jab neither prevented you from coming down with COVID, nor did it prevent you from passing it on. But as I said, I won't labour that point because I got into it on the programme this morning. Okay, more of your comments then. Uh, Hi to Donal, who says, speaking of Varadkar, Leo Varadkar, uh, he's announced today there will be a special package of measures for towns who have taken in the most asylum seekers. And that's in the Irish Times, I do believe, uh, this afternoon. Uh, The idea that there would be rewards, maybe, is that right? A special package for towns to take in the most asylum seekers. That's in the Irish Examiner, not the Irish Times. Uh, A special package for the 10 areas that have taken in the most... Uh, the highest number of Ukrainians and asylum seekers will be put in place to support communities, according to uh, Varadkar. These resources would include uh, more school places, increased Gardaí and healthcare provisions will be allocated to towns and villages that have seen the largest increase in population due to accommodating those who seek refuge. Thank you uh, so much. Uh, for that. Uh, Donald Wayne said earlier on in the programme how many steps between not allowing unjabbed kids to go to school and not allowing anyone unjabbed to work, to go to a shop or to enter a public space? That's a very good question. And we saw that in Israel. Uh, We spoke yesterday, didn't we, with Molly Kingsley. Molly is uh, part Jewish. She has a Jewish background. We talked about that. Um, Israel was absolute tyranny back in uh, the COVID lockdowns. Israel was the first country to introduce the Green Pass and it, it implemented it. it. It basically enacted it. It, it, it. it went live. There was a time period in the state of Israel where if you couldn't prove you were jabbed, you were not allowed to go to cinemas, you were not allowed to go to theatres, to restaurants, to shopping centres or even to gyms. So Wayne is right. It happened. We've seen it. And it isn't a stretch of the imagination. In the West Midlands today, they've admitted that they're telling children who have not had any measles jab to not come to school. Amazing. Well, let me tell the full story. If they've not had a jab and if they have been in contact with somebody who has had measles, they must not come to school. Figure that one out. They tell you that if the child has the measles jab, the child is inoculated against measles. So why would an unjabbed child be a threat in any way, shape or form to a child who has had uh, the vaccination? They won't answer that. They wouldn't answer it during COVID. Um, if you haven't had a jab, you can't go to a care home. Yeah, but, 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 but I understand you've vaccinated everybody in the care home. And it was at that point, because people were saying, well, 
I can't go to a care home to see granny because I haven't been jabbed. Yes, you can't. You might give it to granny. And at that point, we said, not me, but others said, well, um, if granny's been jabbed and had her boosters, what's the problem? It was at that point they admitted, well, doesn't stop you passing it on. It doesn't stop you coming down with it. It was lie after lie after lie, wasn't it? Okay. Yeah, there might be a problem with Paul. Um, Paul Craig Roberts, he, of course, of uh, formerly of the Reagan administration, was due to be with me around about 15 minutes ago, in fact, uh, to talk to us about um, the goings-on in the Middle East, the goings-on in the US presidential race, and much more besides. But as of now, uh, there is no sign of Paul. That's okay. You get weeks like that. It was the same yesterday. Uh, I'll take a tune. When I come back, we'll go another way. Because I like going other ways. Today is day 16. Sons, sons, alcohol for your BBG. Day 16, eh? Ah, the discipline. Yeah, music from Aha, Morton Harkett, of course. And uh, the sun always shines on TV. Thank you to Conan. Conan, thanks. Richie, I've finished an excellent eight-part drama. Uh, it's called Dope Sick with Michael Keaton. Does he narrate that, does he, uh, Conan? He says, I'd recommend it highly. Superb production, telling the story of big pharma corruption during the production of the synthetic opioid OxyContin throughout the 90s and noughties. It's a damning picture of the industry, the psychotic greed of the CEOs, the way they captured the regulatory agencies to push the products, buying off the doctors, buying off journals, medical journals, deliberately manipulating statistics, which they fed to their marketing departments, and the total gaslighting of the many victims of their drugs. How did a big budget show like this get made without being cancelled, well, he says they restrict their criticism to Purdue Pharma as a one rotten apple, but we who are in the know are aware that Big Pharma is a barrel of rotten apples and this corrupt behaviour is the norm. Excellent uh, message, Conan, yes. And I, you, you probably know Conan better than me, but we, the, the missus and myself, we watched a Netflix drama, a docudrama about Purdue and how it um, did pretty much what you've uh, outlined in your excellent message there. And it was very well acted, wasn't it? A recent one, I came across it or I heard about it when the producers of it were interviewed on a podcast I listened to occasionally presented by your man, your man, uh, Joe Rogan. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, David says, Richie, the doctor pushing the jab, if you listen, she carefully, if you listen carefully, she says, 100% effective, not effective. Uh, stand up in court with that, uh, she could, says David. Thank you, uh, David. Let's, um, something, I, again, to go back to a story I covered in the newspapers this morning, something I think is worth, worth mentioning again. And it is the Oxford Union Press. Excuse me, the Oxford University Press, right? And... Uh, Broadcasters went with this today. They always go with the same stories. Um, climate change becomes the 2023 children's word of the year. Children desire meaningful change. We were told by the Guardian newspaper today after climate change was named as the children's word of the year. 
again by Oxford University Press, which does this every year. Right, it canvasses children aged between 6 and 14 to find out their word of the year. In fact, they speak to over 3,000 children. Uh, the most common response was climate change, followed close in second place by war and third by coronation, because these were the big stories of the past 12 months, weren't they? Never-ending hysteria in the media about catastrophic, cataclysmic climate change. Of course, we hear a lot about the Ukraine war. Of course, since October, we've been hearing about Palestine and Israel, of course. And then coronation, that makes sense. The media went absolutely apeshit over the coronation of Charles III. No doubt about that. So they began this poll in 2014, asking kids for their buzzword, the word they would associate with the past 12 months, right? And according to The Guardian, the results are becoming increasingly more serious. In 2020, the children's word was coronavirus. Uh, In 2021, it was anxiety. Imagine that. They spoke to 3,000 or more kids in 2021 and said to them, Hey, listen, kids, what's the big word for, 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 for you in the last 12 months, you and people your age? And the kids said, anxiety. Of course, why wouldn't they say anxiety in 2021? And in 2022, they said queen uh, because your one, your one, Queen Elizabeth II died, didn't she? So the Guardian writes, was last year proving to be the hottest ever recorded? That's another wonderful bit of bullshit, that. You know, doesn't matter whether it's the hottest ever recorded. I I would take issue with that. Uh, We know that the earth was almost impossible to live on at times over the the, the lifespan of planet Earth 50,000 years ago. There was virtually no ice in the Arctic. It was so hot. Okay, we know this through ice core uh, analysis and expeditions in the Arctic Circle. We know all this stuff. So stick your records up your backside. Long before the Industrial Revolution, there were periods on this planet, and it is a planet, you mad, flat earth, believe in feckers. Uh, There were times when it was incredibly warm. Uh, Times when it froze, absolutely froze, when the Thames would freeze over in London. And there were times when uh, grapes were grown in Yorkshire. All of this documented and totally true. So they're scaring the bejesus out of children. And now they're saying to kids, what's the main word? And they're saying climate change. And sadly, and depressingly, the children told Oxford University Press that the word makes them feel sad, scared and worried. Now, a a talking head by the name of Ralph Schulhammer, he's a political theorist, you often find him on the conservative media. Ralph Schulhammer spoke to Julia Hartley Brewer today on this subject, on kids choosing climate change as their word of the year for 2023. Here's Ralph Schulhammer. No, it's, and it's very sad. I mean, we, what we should promote in schools should be a message that encourages young people to be put in a position that they can contribute to a better lives for themselves and to a better lives around them. And let me give you a quick example, a wonderful story that I think we should tell school children. Many people don't know this, but uh, towards the end of the 19th century, the world was faced with the prospect of imminent famine. 
But the reaction of the world was not to say, oh my God, we're all gonna die. There's nothing we can do and throw the hands up in there. What they did was to say, okay, we need more food. So two Germans and obscure Frenchmen and their English intern, and that's a true story, developed what is nowadays known as the Haber-Bosch process, uh, which is artificial fertilizer, which feeds half the, half the world. So yeah. most of your viewers and one of the two of us, Julia, wouldn't be here without that process. But yeah. the point is there was a can-do spirit. And nowadays we have a can't-do spirit. And that's really the problem. And we are promulgating that in schools. Oh, 100%. So instead of educating young people to be optimistic, to be energized, to be motivated for the future, we say, ah, oh, the future's gonna be bad. You're gonna be worse off than your parents. Yeah. Of course, no, we don't young even people say, say what's the point of it? What's the point of it, kids say? What's the point of it? What he says next is even more interesting. There is almost a certain pleasure in the potential apocalypse. And we see this in, yes. you know, look at the newspapers. It's the climate apocalypse. Uh, World War Three is around the corner. Uh, a new virus can emerge any day now and will kill half the population. I mean, I would say this kind of quote unquote desire for the apocalypse, which I think is partially driven. I say this every time, but I think it's so important to say that in many ways, particularly in the West, we have become so rich that parts of our society have become so bored that they want something dramatic just to give meaning to their life. That's really interesting. This. Now, I'm not saying I agree with this, because I think a lot of the scaremongering and the talk about climate collapse and viruses that might kill us, I believe a lot of that is to deliberately terrorise youngsters. And again, I mentioned this on the podcast this morning. Uh, the Papers podcast is downloadable. You can download it every morning, usually before 7.30 a.m. But I think it's to make children more suggestible. Because when people are in a state of fear or anxiety, a perpetual or a constant state of fear or anxiety, again, there is science on this that proves it, they become more malleable. You can make them into whatever you want. So there is that. But I also think you might be onto something here. The idea that it, it was exciting. Is that life has become so boring. Now he says it's become so boring because we've become so rich. I want your thoughts on this. This is really interesting. I think we could do a phone-in on this. If not this week, next week, we could do a phone-in. Because I think it's a bit too simple to say, we've become so rich, we've become so bored. I'm not sure about that. I would leave rich to one side because I'm not particularly rich. Nor, is, um, nor are the people I know, they're not rich either. Now, we're not poor. We're not poor. You know, we've, 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 we can afford to pay our mortgages, we can afford to put food on the table, and we can have the occasional night out. So we're not poor, but we're not rich. But I think there's a relationship between um, inertia, between laziness, between social media, between sitting on your arse behind a computer screen, and what that does to your dopamine levels, right? We've gotten into this, this is fascinating. And how it messes with your dopamine levels and kind of impacts on how you get pleasure and how you get enjoyment out of anything, right? So, so I think he's onto something because I'll tell you why he might be onto something. I'm going to rewind this so we can hear him say it again. I vividly remember, and you, you know I would never um, throw something like this in unless I, I meant it or, or it happened, but one time and one time only, and I'm sure you've encountered this too. One time or one time only, I met somebody and it's killing me. I'm racking my brains. It's somebody I know through dog walking, I think, but maybe not, who said, not recently, but who said back in 2020 that they found it exciting. That was the term they used. I can't remember who it was. It's driving me mad. Said that it was exciting. It was kind of an adventure to be caught up in this. 
you know, daily briefings. There's a pandemic. And more than one person said to me, doesn't this feel a bit like that Dustin Hoffman film with, with um, Rennie Russo? Outbreak. It's mad, Richie. Pandemic. I never thought we'd live through this. Somebody said to me, exciting they found it. That's interesting, right? Now, I don't think that's, like I said, I think the scaremongering, the fearmongering is not because people are excited to be in some drama that they can be, that they can participate in, you know, as a player, rather than watch it on Netflix, rather than watch it on Amazon. You can be in it. You, the person, can be in it. You can be in the drama, in the pandemic, the deadly pandemic. So he's on to something, but I think it's more to do with um, scaring people, keeping people in that, as I've already said, that perpetual state of fear and anxiety, because again, a thousand studies, a thousand experiments have been done. The more scared you are, the more suggestible you become to anything that takes you a little bit away from that fear, you see. But go back to what he says again about um, uh, the excitement of it and um, the boredom that preceded uh, the COVID nonsense and all these claims about climate collapse. Right? Apocalypse, which I think is partially driven, I say this every time, but I think it's so important to say that in many ways, particularly in the West, we have become so rich that parts of our society have become so bored that they want something dramatic just to give meaning to their life. Uh, and I think this, of course, also played into, for example, the reaction to the COVID pandemic. Um, there was a lot of overreaction to it because for some reason there was this idea, this is now going to be it. This is going to be all, end all, you know, great challenge of, 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 of the day, of, of the moment. And this is really a problem because, as you say, if you desire the, the, the end of times, if you kind of wish for the end the, the end day scenario, then of course you don't really have an interest in finding solutions for it. Yeah. And this has always been my main criticism about the environmental movement. I care about the environment as much as you do. I care about the climate as much as you do. What worries me is that those who push for it the hardest, the Just Stop Oil and Fridays for Future group, they are not interested in solutions. Yeah. They want the pain. They want the suffering, as long as it excludes them, right? This is always the thing. They oh, yes. for themselves, they'll, of they'll course, they're privileged. They'll still go on. They'll still take their half-term ski flights, hasn't it? Well, I yeah, that's another issue. You know, whether the members of Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion um, want pain and misery for everybody else, but not for them. That's another issue entirely. But does he have a point when he talks about people? Do you believe it's possible that all the talk about imminent climate collapse? and the need to drastically and radically change course, that humanity must begin, that people must begin to live very differently to the way we lived before. Do you think on some level that's exciting for some people? Exciting on the basis that they're, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're motivated by, wow, we're living through this. Because again, these, the, the scenarios being, um, being mooted by being thrown at people by the climate doom mongers and the pandemic doom, doom mongers. These were previously the preserve of fictional television and films. This is predictive programming, is it? Because we saw so many films over the years, disaster films. And of course, in recent years, so many of them were about climate. You know, John Cusack, 2012, is a day after tomorrow, Dennis Quaid. There's been loads of them about climate collapse, right? We even had um, any number of films about zombie apocalypses and we had plenty of films about pandemics, right? So do you think that that has somehow led to people 
who kind of get off on it in some way being alive I'm lucky to be alive during this transformative time for humanity it's an interesting concept he's he's uh, dug into there I'm going to maintain and stick with my original comments that um, those who push these agendas I think prim- primarily they're motivated by scaring people uh, into acquiescence and into taking the central bank digital currencies uh, or the central bank digital currency when there'll be only one currency uh, one global currency and all these other horrible dystopian things we talk about anyway fascinating stuff that guy's name and I might try and get him on the programme is Ralph Schulhammer speaking on Talk TV today I don't know what happened to my friend Paul Craig Roberts we were due to speak today I hope he hasn't um, become unwell today uh, Paul he's an octogenarian I'm not being ageist by the way he's a sprightly man uh, for an octogenarian, but he was due to be with me. He is, and that's okay. We'll probably uh, reschedule him. I gave a plug to this yesterday. I'll give a plug to it again today. A former corporate lawyer and a hotelier will be on this program tomorrow. Um, we there's, there's a lot we'll get into. Um, we 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 will get into how to take on this uh, encroaching, um, nightmarish world. They are creating around us, how to take it on, how to face up to it, how to deal with it, how people can collectively stand up to it, and how they can do that through the financial system. Um, we'll, we'll talk about lots. That is tomorrow. Later on in the week, David Curtin will be back on the programme, and there is somebody else booked in on Thursday, but off the top of my head, I can't tell you who. Uh, more of your comments and more chat in a moment. It is exactly 18 minutes to the top of the air. Here's music from Erasure. That's right, Erasure. I was right. Erasure and a little respect. Angela came on to say, people are mostly not fearful of God nowadays. The absence of religion. So in the absence of religion, climate change as a nonsense has become a new religion for the masses. That's interesting for some of them. Hello to Paula, who doesn't believe the earth is round. Thank you, Paula, for your message. I really appreciate it. I'm not going to read it in its entirety. Uh, it's a waste of time. I've gotten into it too many times in the past um, there is an abundance of evidence. It's, it's, it's a strange one for me because I I suppose I'd put my money on it being a simulation. And if you believe that, as I'm not saying I believe it. I don't know what to believe, but I would put my money on a simulation if I had any money to gamble with. So then it makes it, um, it renders it um, re- basically irrelevant, whether it's round or not. But um, um, there's the reality we're in. The, the reality we, we, we exist in, um, all evidence is that um, we're on a planet in a solar system with other planets. That, that's what I believe. People are entitled to believe whatever they want. But um, what, what, I, what I don't like is the arrogance of, uh, if you studied it, Richie. I get this from people. If you read this guy, if you read this, what, what they're saying to me, people, is uh, um, I believe it and here's a podcast Here's a guy, listen to him, and if you don't listen to him, you don't want to believe it. And if you don't listen to him, um, you're putting your head in the sand. It's arrogant. It's arrogant beyond belief. Hold on to whatever beliefs, whatever opinions you, 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 you choose to have. But show a little bit of respect to people who disagree with you. I disagree. 
I don't believe the earth is flat. And, and ultimately, and I really do mean this, it doesn't matter. And when I say it doesn't matter, people come back to me and say, well, well, it does matter if they're telling lies about it. Um, what else are they lying about? You see, that's a ridiculous point to make. Because we already know that they're lying about 10 million things. Yeah, 100%. And yes, I, I understand why some people would say, well, they're lying about 10 million things, so maybe they are lying about the shape of the earth. Yes, maybe. I think it's very unlikely. And I don't think it matters in the grand scheme of things. And I subscribe to uh, our friend John Waters, who believes that the flat earth bollocks, that, that, that's how he sees it, is ultimately a, 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 a theory that is designed to discredit the independent media. And I can see that too. You know, I did my job. I have had people on the programme talking about it. They didn't do very well which pissed people off. Get this guy on, Richie. I got him on and I turned him inside out. And he had no answers. So, um, look, just have some respect. Believe what you want to believe, but don't tell me if I studied it, I'd know. Right? I have fucking studied it. I've brought people on the programme. I asked them questions they couldn't answer. And I'm not giving out to you, Paula. I'm saying that to anybody who plagues me with this flat earth stuff. I don't think it matters. Uh, Chris says, the thrill of the times we are living through is a common meme of the trucer industrial complex. Uh, tip of the spear, Alex Jones. Uh, thank you. Isabel says, this is interesting. I think, she says, there is a possibility of apocalypse or dramas providing people with a reason to give up control of their lives and become victims. It is called the poor me drama. Anyone who has read James Redfield's The Celestine Prophecy will understand this reference, says Isabel. That's interesting now. That um, the possibility of living through the apocalypse or some existential threat to humanity uh, can give people a reason to give over control of their own lives. And she recommends James Redfield and his book, The Celestine Prophecy, which I never heard of until today. But I bet my better half will probably have read that book because she's into that type of thing. And fair play to her. Um, that is her prerogative. The Sarcastic Window Cleaner says, Anyone who found the daily fear briefings on COVID exciting needs their effing heads examined. It made me finally throw out my television. <laughs> And I doubt you were alone there. Hi to Bill. Bill says, The sucker punch with flat Earth is, if the Earth is flat, why are all the other planets you see in the night sky and in our solar system round? Thank you, Bill. Hello to Jude, who says, Richie, I've listened for a long time, but it's my first time messaging you. I'm getting in touch, says Jude, as I've just found out my 84-year-old mother is suffering from polymyalgia. And after briefly researching this, I found out it is associated with mRNA jabs. I wonder if any other listeners have heard of this or suffered from it. Jude, thanks for sending the message and thanks for listening. And I'm sorry to hear about your mum and I hope um, she'll be okay. But I don't know very much myself about polymyalgia which won't come as a surprise to you because I don't know very much about anything. Um, but dear listener, what do you think of what Jude said? Have you read or have you heard anything about polymyalgia 
and uh, the mRNA jabs. If you have done, let me know. And if it comes in after uh, the programme, I'll read out the messages on tomorrow's show. Thank you for that, uh, Jude. Hi to Mel, who says, The film Songbird was released during lockdown, and it definitely fed into the idea of individuals relating to these uh, dystopian times, these COVID times. Thank you, Mel. Very interesting. Hi to David who says, Richie, I'm gay and I live in Manchester. When there was a bad shooting in a gay bar in America that made national news, they had a late night vigil in the city centre. And I noticed a lot of people seemed to love the victim status and the grieving seemed fake. Virtue signalling as they didn't know the victims. So that is similar to what the German bloke said about the climate, maybe. Thanks, David. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So when, uh, because there was a, a terrible shooting in a gay bar in Florida, wasn't there? Where a lot of people were killed. I do remember that. And David says there was a vigil in Manchester. And David, if you, th- if you think back to 2017, uh, May the 22nd, uh, 2017, I think it was, so you had the incident at the arena in Manchester. I better be careful about talking about that because some listeners go mad. They tell me it never happened, Richie, and all of this stuff. I don't know. Look, it doesn't matter. But the fact is, right, people died in the arena. And I remember a couple of days later or three days later, I had to be in Manchester in St. Peter's Square. There were thousands of people, the great majority, completely unconnected to the incident at the arena not related to anybody who perished, who died on the evening in question. And there they were, sobbing, many of them. Sobbing and standing there with their hands clasped together on their chests, mourning, looking mournful and maudlin. And I remember thinking, what the fuck is going on here? This was actually written about, would you believe, by Boris Johnson during his time at the Telegraph newspaper. He wrote a scathing article criticising Scousers for attending vigils for Ken Bigley, who was beheaded by terrorists, I think, in Iraq or Afghanistan. I can't remember. Now, Johnson is an arse with a capital A, but he was tapping into something. And he talked about the millions of people who came out to grieve for Princess Diana. Now, millions is probably overstating it. Maybe not. Maybe it was millions, but it was certainly hundreds of thousands came out. Lying streets all over the place to, to mourn. Crying people were... I don't mind if people came out respectfully, just tipped a nod. You know, doffed their cap. I don't mind that. Because, you know, the media presented a picture of Princess Diana that she was some sort of saint. Some sort of saintly figure. Which she might have been, I don't know, but maybe she wasn't. So you can understand people coming out if there was, um, I don't know, if there was a a community gathering or a neighbourhood, you know, kind of a neighbourhood acknowledgement, a neighbourhood marking of the passing of Diana. You could understand it. Yeah, I'll just go over there for five minutes, yeah, and tip me cap. Yeah, sure, Princess Diana, God love her. You could understand that. But people were bawling, people collapsing in the streets. We saw this in Manchester in 2017. So interesting comment by David. Thank you, David. About um, a, a gay bar shot up in America. And vigils in Manchester, thousands of miles away. The victim status. Very, very interesting, this. Right. Thank you. 
for your messages. Thanks for listening to the programme today. Uh, thank you very much to Kira Connolly uh, for coming on the programme in Hour 1 to talk uh, about what's happening in Ireland. And that incredible story about your man from Zimbabwe, uh, Peter Dubay, uh, on the run, uh, suspected of murder, and the attempts by Kira, and then later on the attempts by others to draw attention to this and to get anybody interested in Ireland about this, the presence of this man. And they were stonewalled and basically, you know, blanked at, at every juncture. I'm back with you tomorrow at the usual time of four o'clock UK time. Before that, of course, the Papers podcast will be online. It'll be online before 7.30am UK time sometimes earlier. So if you get a chance to download it, uh, do download it. Uh, the papers, yes. Uh, and I'm back, as I said, already tomorrow at four o'clock. In the meantime, wrap up well, keep warm. It's freezing out there. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Look after yourselves and look after one another. I'm closing out the programme today with this classic from Travis. I like this. Sloan Tomo. Bye now. Bye now.